0: Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of Africa Carrefour. In this episode, I will be replaying a discussion I had about two weeks ago with my good friend Jabulele on at the Millennia Dialogue on Africa, where we talked about education, what it takes to get an education abroad as an African. I hope that um, you would enjoy the discussion, and always let me know if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, and we'll be sure to address them here. At the Carrefour. Next week, I'm looking forward to the episode next week where I talk with my very good friend, uh, Dr. Abby, on the mental health stigma in Africa. It is a really good discussion, and I hope that uh, you can tune in as well next week uh, for that uh, episode. But until then, I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and do not forget to check out Millennia Dialogue on Africa on all social media uh, platforms to see some of the other discussions that um, they have had on that uh, platform. Thank you.
1: Um, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us this evening. My name is Jagli Levuteleze Kalonji, and I am the convener for Millennial Dialogue on Africa. We have been doing this now for a pretty good year. I think we started this just after, I think, 2020 March, you know, uh, just in the middle of COVID, when we were just running wild with different ideas of what uh, conversations, or what kind of conversations we've been getting to as young Africans, Uh, particularly millennials, because I suppose our issues are quite specific as we struggle with a number of things, but these discussions have been quite progressive, and we are pretty much starting them again for this year, pretty much late in the year, but there's a reason for that, and I'm more than happy to bring to you two guests today who are very good friends of mine, uh, passionate academics, scholars, whatever you want to call them, but uh, I think you'll be pretty inspired uh, by what they have to say today, our topic uh, for this evening i'm saying evening because in south africa it's 7 p.m just after 7 p.m uh, but where one of my guests is in the us it's pretty much around lunchtime so perhaps let me start off by introducing him uh, dr Lucien nana yobo from texas thank you for joining us and for taking your lunch break to share with us your time um, and also dr tinashe Mushakavanu. thank you he's with me here in south africa thank you so much to you both for this time and I welcome all our guests from across the continent and the world. Just to set the tone to our discussion this evening, I'm not gonna say it's gonna be brief or long, but it's, it's gonna be impactful because we're going to talk about studying abroad. What does it actually take um, in terms of educating the African child? Now we're not saying African People, African young people should go and study abroad, but we say for those who have that interest of going abroad to study, we're going to try and share a few tips, of course, not me, but my two guests who will be speaking from experience uh, and just share a little bit of insight. Um, When we were doing a bit of preparation and reading for this uh, segment, we came across a few facts and I just want to share some of the few things, perhaps just to plant a seed in your heads, in terms of when you think about where students choose to study. Uh, This, of course, would have a profound impact on their future outlook, one would think. Uh, Perhaps one would even think it has, it may affect things like where they can have a job, where they get a job and where they get to live at the end of that education, especially if they are getting global education. Uh, Of course, this is particularly true for African students who have been or are seen as the fastest growing student demographic in the world in recent years. And this is now obviously from, in fact, a lot of people would say this is the rise of the middle class where Africa's uh, overseas uh, students could be a key driving force of development across the African continent in years to come. I personally, uh, in a bit, in a way, agree with this. I do feel that the more open you are to, uh, you know, opportunities of expanding yourself and your growth, the better you are well placed. Um, But the question that we're hoping to answer at the end of this discussion, while we finish talking, perhaps, or attempt to answer it is, can this growth be maintained in a world still dealing with COVID-19? Of course, everything that we do now has this effect or each other. You were affected one way or the other as COVID has really changed the landscape of how we do things and how everything else happened everywhere else. Now, you would know for those who follow the news as well that the government in the US recently also kind of backed down on uh, its policy to sort of revoke visas of international students who uh, pretty much will attend only online university classes for the new 2020, 2021 year. Um, And there's also an interesting feature, while China has managed the COVID-19 crisis domestically much better than the US, some would say, China is only slowly giving a new rise, a new visas to international students encouraging many to defer or do studies online. I will leave it here for now. I wish to invite uh, one of my guests uh, to just give opening remarks and just share their view when it comes to the subject. I must tell you that we are going to have questions uh, a bit later, so feel free. Of course, there's nobody joining us here, but we're on Facebook, so if you have something to ask, please type it through now, and uh, towards the end of the show, we'll be able to just tap into a few of your questions and answer anything you may have to go. At this point in time, allow me to invite... Uh, Dr. Tinashe Mushakavanu, kindly just give us your uh, opening remarks.
2: Uh, thank you so much Jabulia, for this, you know, wonderful platform. Um, I remember when you launched it, uh, you know, I attended that very first one and have been keeping up with it. And, um, yeah, thank you for, for making me a guest, you know, in this particular episode. Um, so I, I decided to just, I'm going to tell a, a brief story, um, uh, I felt like I need to pay homage, you know, to where I came from, because for me, going abroad begins begins in my parents' house. Um, I've been privileged to live, study, work in different countries and different continents, but the journey begins in Harare, where I was born and where, where I spent my formative years. One of the ways my parents expressed themselves to each other and to us, their children, was through books to both my parents, I owe my early acquaintance with books and reading. I was presented from as early as I can remember with books of my own. They, uh, they were different readers, though. My father's selection included modules on politics, economics, civic affairs, local governance, which he read for his correspondence courses. But his number one love was the newspaper. So there was always current current affairs, current news, news. Um, uh, exposure to current affairs. Whereas my mom's reading was all very imaginative, fictions of all kinds. There must have been novels from her girlhood in the house, books she protected and thought we her children should grow up with. For as, for as long as I, uh, for so long, our book had uh, offered P.B. texts, Song of Lawino, Chinua Chebe, Taban Loliong, Ama Ataidu, Charles Mungoshi, Semben Usman, and a lot of Shona novels. At first, I avoided these books. They looked old and boring. Yet regardless of my childish ignorance, I cannot remember a time I was not in love with them, with the books themselves, cover and binding and the paper they were printed on, with their smell and their weight and with their po- possession in my arms, captured and carried off to myself. Um, okay, so yes, I, I'm just talking about my love for books which begins in the house. Um, and I think I was balanced by this sort of different readings. So my father's current, my, my father's love for current affairs and my mother's fiction. And I think it is the fiction that transported me to the worlds that I would eventually go and live in. So when I eventually leave Zimbabwe to study in Wales uh, at first, and then I moved to England and then I spent a couple of years in the U.S. Um, I first left Zimbabwe when I was 23 years old. I had started writing poetry and short stories published in a few anthologies alongside my literary heroes and starting to get invited to speak at regional conferences. And I think I should qualify that first moment when I left, I met a a writer from Wales who at the time was teaching at a university. So she taught uh, creative writing and I didn't even know people could go to university to study creative writing. And so when she returned, we kept in touch and she asked me what I wanted to do um and I told her that I wanted to go abroad but I had no idea where I I yeah and we just kept speaking and I applied to this university she taught in Wales Trinity College um and I was accepted but there was no scholarship and one of the most remarkable things she did for me was that she brought writers from Wales to contribute uh personal materials uh, artifacts, clothing, books, and they they did an auction to raise funding for me to to go. So I didn't have a traditional scholarship, you know. The first time I left, um, but I think what what uh, what endeared me to that particular experience was just the generosity of of strangers who made it possible. Um, but I'll, I'll talk. I'll come back to that experience. But England was to take away something from me, which I'm still recovering or may never recover. So I still have I still, I still, have a lot of thoughts about the, that moment when I left, because it turned out that the question of who I was was not yet resolved. I'd prematurely removed myself from the social forces, which were still forming my identity. In that sojourn, I've, I met other travelers who had coped with the same dilemmas. People like James Baldwin, Bob Marley, V.S. Nepal, and these encounters renewed my faith. As Stuart Hall puts it, identity is never finished. It is a movable feast formed and transformed continuously in relation to the ways we are represented or addressed in the cultural systems which surround us. And so I remain a work in progress. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mshaka Vanu. Uh, I felt like I was uh, moving through channels of a novel just pages of, you know, just a wonderful story. But, you know, you've said something quite profound as well, which I'm going to get back to a bit later, perhaps in a question about how ones one perhaps would struggle with just the balance of identity and, and that sort of thing. But I really just want to park it there for now for you and, and just invite uh, Dr. Yobo to perhaps open, uh, share his opening remarks and then we can then uh, do a dual Q&A at the end, uh, Dr. Yobo
0: yeah so thank you, Jabuleli, for this, and uh, for the opportunity here uh, to talk and you know share a little bit about myself. Um, as a scientist, rarely do we talk about ourselves. Many times we are always keen on talking about our research, and so this, at least for me, was a little bit reflective to think about how far I, I guess I have come. Um, I'm originally from Cameroon, so that's in West Africa. We have borders with Nigeria, Chad, you know, the Congo and Gabon and Equatorial Guinea. So we're right there in the middle of Africa. And um, when I was, uh, say maybe when I was in high school, that was when I actually developed an interest to want to go abroad to study. I think that um, my parents were very supportive of me. Um, My dad in particular knew the significance of education. My dad is the first son of his family, and so spent really, like in most African culture, a lot of his working years taking care of his younger siblings, and also um trying to pay for himself through you know part-time school year and that to be able to get some medication for himself, and so I imagine or I suppose as I've had discussions with him, um, is that as he had his own kids, you know, he's goal and desire was that they should be able to be educated to you know the the best of places that he can afford even if he can't afford he wished that they could do that and my mother on the other hand was was the same and so she would always I remember my mom would always pray um when we're growing up uh, that you know, whatever she could not achieve or attain in in her education, God should be able to do that through her children. And so she will constantly remind us of the importance of education. And as an African kid, this was a very important message because education gives us that avenue to be able to come out of poverty. It gives us an exposure to the world and it opens even our minds because you know just like they say those who are not educated are like reading you know stuck on the same page of a book and so your mind really um sometimes when you go you see places you communicate with others it also helps shapes your perspective and so that's what um i really uh, started and so i remember the conversation i had with my dad um when i was i think two years before i finished in high school i said you know i want to go to america to study and My dad never told me, no, my dad was that, you know, we, you know, again, again, as a Christian man is that we're going to pray for this and God is going to find a way. Um, Later on, when I graduated from, 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 with my undergrad degree, with my bachelor's and I had a discussion with him, it was that, you know, he told me that, you know, he was really excited because back then when I told him I wanted to go, even though at the time he did not have, he did not see how it was going to be possible, how I was going to go to, you know, to the U.S., pay for school and all of that stuff. But, you know, he was very much convicted that, you know, if this is a God thing, then it's going to happen. And, you know, my dad never discouraged me. It was just that, sure, we're going to try and I am going to sacrifice all I can to be able to see that uh, you achieve that. And, and so really, it that was, you know, that environment really supported me. And The one other thing, again, as we think about and as this discussion is going to progress, um, as we think about going to school, one thing that was really in my mind was what I wanted to study. My parents never forced any study on me, like, oh, you know, like we grew up in Africa, you must be a doctor, a lawyer, some kind of an engineer. I grew up in Cameroon, we had active volcanoes. I'd always wondered in my mind why this mountain would erupt. You know, there are the stories reading books that the gods are angry and and all of that. And so it is that the gods have to be at peace for all of this. And so my mind was just that I just want to know why there has to be some kind of reason. And growing up in Cameroon, we also had this disaster of Lake Neos in 1986 that, you know, killed an entire village. A crater lake just erupted. And so at the back of my mind, these were questions that I wanted to understand for myself, because, again, there, there are lots of superstition in our context about, about some of these but so that was what pushed me to study geology and when i came into geology my mind just was wild i realized that there was more to just try and understand the earth in which we live in than just mountains and so on and i think that as people as habitants of this planet it, it, it we do not do ourselves justice if we do not really spend time to understand how this planet has evolved over time and you know this goes again to other issues of climate change and all or not where um, if we do not become good stewards, then we probably will not have a home for ourselves in the near future. But again, those has you know, those have other implications, but, you know, America was a good journey for me. Uh, it was really for the first time, because, you know, in Africa, there's this big issue of, um, we take pride in our names, we take pride in our lineage. And so for me, one of, when I came here, a big cultural shock for me was realizing that uh, I come from a country where I, you know, hundred percent of the people are black and I, come from a tribe and a lineage that is the biggest in my country. And then I realized that I'm coming to become a minority. So a lot of those shifts started happening in my mind. Like it was hard to even deal with that from majority to minority and also trying to understand where I really was because really for the first time, I did not have um, family records and history and people that knew them to be able to vouch for me it became me in a sense, creating my own path. And that was not easy. It helped me understand really a lot about myself. It helped me really understand um, why I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, you know, in a nutshell, that, that was just high tease. And, you know, it's been a lot of struggles, but there have been many instances where you can see um, that, you know, this is a good thing. And, um, you know, from there, you know, from my undergrad days all the way to completing a PhD, that was really um. You know truly a testament of 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 really that hard work really does pay off, and that um we just understanding and knowing why you want to do something um is very important. so I'll leave it at that, and maybe we're going to continue this in with other questions and you know we'll try to expand on other points and topics.
1: Thank you very much uh thank you so much for sharing your story, dr Yobu, so I just want to ask. I suppose to you both, you know, I want just to start with the fundamentals. You touched a little bit bit on it, uh, Dr. Yoba, about how easy is it uh, to, here you are, you're a young African in high school, you've got, you are surrounded by limiting circumstances. This is your reality that you're used to, you see this every day, but your mind is telling you something different, your heart is telling you different. How easy is it to get into your dream institution as an African young person? We're still in high school. What happens to this thinking big and wanting to break free from these very limiting circumstances? Perhaps I should start with you, Dr. Elber, because you briefly touched on that. How easy is it to, to materialize this, this ideal?
0: I think that it is a lot more easier than people think. Um, and, you know, just like they say, the you know, the size of your dreams, are only you're, you're the one who can limit how big you want to dream. I think that um, a lot of people, what really limits people from realizing this stuff is, is, is the idea that you know, again, I don't know how the situation is in Southern Africa, but in West Africa, we like when people do stuff for us, right? I just call up my cousin and say, "Hey, you know, I I want. It. Can you go find me admission and and so on and so forth?" I think that those become limiting terms for us. Is that we allow other people to define for us what they think is best for us? We are, uh, you know, and also because of, and part of that is also poverty. You know, sadly, because we are we do not have a lot of means. Um, dreaming about really education and why it might be significant in our lives must be limited because we are just trying to get out of that poverty. We're just trying to be able to find ways in which we can better the economic situation of our of ourselves and our family. And so many times we don't um, you know, we don't think about it, but if, for example, a student wants to get into and you want to get into, I don't know what just the big schools here in the U.S., Harvard, the MIT and, and Yale and the Stanford and so on. And I realize that it's actually a lot more easier, especially for an African student, because we come from uh, trainings that are very rigorous. We come from uh, and we have good stories and we likely have good reasons why we want an education and the impact and the effect of that education is going to be enormous for us because most of us will likely return home. We're going to likely get into, you know, positions of power and influence and we're going to help not just transform our own lives, but the lives of entire communities. And so really the big thing there is you have to, I mean, spend some time and think for yourself what is it that you want to do and also spend some time to research back then um internet was not as common as it is right now i remember i used to spend hours on the internet reading about some of these schools reading about other programs but right now i mean it's other i mean every phone now is connected every my little cousins who are just 10 years old have phones with internet and they're you know doing whatever they're doing and and so you now the resource has been brought to the palm of your hand. And so really, I just think it is spending a lot of time researching and trying to find out and also knowing what you want to do. Uh,
1: Dr. Mshaka Vanu, just perhaps your view on that one. How do you break free from that and sort of tapping into this dream? Uh,
2: yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I agree with a lot of what uh, Dr. Iobo is, uh, You know, is just mentioned, but I think, In my own experience, I didn't get into my dream school, you know, um, because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what it means. I I think what led me was curiosity. And I think that's also, you know, I think it's good to dream. I think it's also important to be curious. Um, And I went to study something that I was passionate about, you know, I I was just starting out as a writer and I was surprised that writing was taught, you know, uh, as at a university. Um, And I just went, I think my, I became more intentional when I wanted to do my PhD because now I was in the system. Now I was having conversations. I was making friends. And I think one of the most impactful um, figures, you know, that happened, you know, in, in, in those formative years, abroad was a professor who I think at the time was 26 I was 23 and he was telling me a story about doing his PhD as a young guy and I was just like I was so shocked and so surprised that it was possible to be 26 and have a PhD because where I was coming from PhD holders were much older people where I, I didn't meet people my age, you know, in my neighborhood who had those kinds of qualifications. And that for me was also very transformational. So we had a lot of conversations and I knew after that, that I wanted to also go go on and do my PhD. And I started applying around. um, um, I started applying around and I wanted to go to the obvious, you know, I wanted to go to Oxford, for example, uh, for my PhD. And the conversations that I had So this is, I think at that time, I didn't understand the politics of, you know, supervision, the politics of the academy, but I still remember that I reached out to a potential supervisor and they told me that, well, you have to be ready to come and fight. And I remember thinking to myself, why do I want to go to an institution to fight? You know, I want to go and learn and grow and enjoy and make, you know, and create friendships. So in the end, I ended up going to another university, University of Kent in Canterbury. And the reason I went there was, when I was an undergrad, one of the first books I, I was using was written by a Zimbabwean writer who had been there uh, in the seventies. And then it turned out that most Zimbabwean writers had been students at that university. And I said to myself, well, I will be, I'll become part of this genealogy of writers and I will attend this university and try to understand why it was important, you know, for this sort of pioneering scholars and writers from our country. Um, but I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I think. You you limit yourself before you have left. You know, I think that for me, I was I was lucky in in every in every experience I had. I didn't have uh, typical scholarships. It was always the generosity of uh, of of strangers, of people who just believed in my in my ambition, people who loved my story, people that I encountered as I spoke to them. That's how I ended up, you know, these different institutions that I've that I've spent my life in. Um, it's not been typical. I apply for a scholarship and I get it. It's just been conversation. You know, I encounter someone from Kent and we are having a conversation and I'm learning a history that speaks to my identity, that speaks to my love for for literature. And somehow, you know, funding is found for me to be there. It's not... Um, it's not sort of the traditional scholarship, so I yeah. So I'm, I've I've been grateful. You know, I'm grateful f- for family support. You know, I think even when you are there, like I I'm I'm a first generation myself. You know, all the qualifications I've had, whether it's a PhD, you know, I'm the first person from both sides of my family to have a PhD. Um, so there was never anybody, you know, in in my immediate circles, in my immediate family, that I could ask for for help, for assistance. I've had to figure out these things as I go along and I've been lucky, you know, like right now in this platform these are the kinds of networks that have also nurtured me. It's also younger people, my peers that I've met along the way and we're having these conversations and I'm I'm learning and growing from them. Um and increasingly, you know, I'm I'm finding myself in that position where I'm now having to share the experience, you know, with another generation of ambitious, you know, young Africans who want to go abroad or who just want to do well in their chosen fields.
1: Yeah. Well, we certainly need to pass the baton, absolutely. I think part of how we want to grow Africa or how much we love Africa or our sort of claim to love Africa is the the fact that we've got to share. Um, You you win at some point, you you got to take down the ladder for somebody else. I want us to quickly talk about, just briefly, just the admin, just to give an idea to somebody who's sitting there listening to us and thinking, okay, so where do I start? What do I do? I mean, you've touched on, you do a lot of research, but what are some of the tick boxes? If you were to have a checklist, what are some of the tick boxes that one has to get right as one prepares to leave their home country to study abroad? Uh, And how important would you rate alumni advice when you're doing your admin, you know, basically just setting up for studying abroad, whether pre or post being accepted?
0: Yeah, so um, I think that that is important. Again, you have to decide where you want to go to. If you're going to England or to British school systems, they have different set of requirements. If you're going to the American school systems, then they have different set of requirements. So, for example, for those of us in West Africa, um, you know, a lot of our countries are French speaking. And so there's a language issue. Um, you have to make sure that, you know, you have the necessary language requirements, you know, things like that. Um Again, now things are changing. I mean, a lot of us went to English schools, even though we're from French countries, um, you know, primary elementary education. We have English schools that our parents decide to put us in because English is a business language. Um, Your grades, you know, you have to get your high school grades and high school work, you know, in order. Um, Some schools require you to do translations of stuff, but... um, You know there are standardized exams that are known and recognized everywhere for us in west africa it's the gc exams and you know or the way west african exam you know so those things are known you know so there's not a lot of work that you have to do to explain that this is my high school um credentials so i think those are the things and the alumni and friends are very important because I think there's a superstition that maybe we want to get to the big schools. You know, schools and universities, especially in America, they ne- they're just brands, really. Um, the quality of your education is not going to change. Uh, even if you go to some school in the middle of someone's backyard that no one has ever heard about, the quality of your education really is not going to change. Schools are just brands, um, brands that give you exposure. Um but at the end of the day, you, as someone who gets educated, you have to be able to use your education. You have to be able to use that and, and then, you know, charge your own part. Your school can only open so many doors for you. At the end of the day, you are the one that have to fight for it. And so I, I think that those are, you know, those are also some things people should think about. As folks who have been there, um, because studying abroad can be very lonely. In fact, it is very lonely. Uh, you realize that uh, you you have a big support system back home that you take for granted, and then you shop, and all of a sudden, guess what? All the holidays you are by yourself. Um, you know, if you don't have money to come back home, oh man, you're you're in for a lot of lonely times. And so, you know, finding a place where maybe there's a big community there, maybe you've had family or friends who have gone through there, that they have other networks that can connect you there. Those things become really important um, because that community becomes. Um, the, I mean, they become really the the glue that holds you together as you, you go through school. And one thing you're going to learn, I mean, when I was in my very first class in the U.S., the professor told me, and I remember this vividly, he said, by the time you guys are there, you will not remember anything in my class. The most things you're going to remember was how you felt on this campus and the friends and the bonds that you met. And that is so true. I can't even remember what we discussed in that class, but I can. I would always remember the friends I made, the, the connections, and how those people were able to help me on my academic journey up to this point.
1: Yeah. Okay. Th- thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that, uh, uh, Dr. Yobo. Uh, Dr. Shaka your your experience. Uh, Perhaps not even to answer that question. I just want to tap into your your mind with this one here. I mean, we have been reading quite a bit and they said that about less than 15% of population across Africa get tertiary education. Of course, tertiary education is important, right? As we all know, in terms of quality and, and quantity. And you know, Dr. Yobo also just alluded to that in terms of how you get to use it eventually. So for those who do get it, it's great. But is there anything wrong? I just want to ask about institutions across Africa, just wide across Africa. Is there something wrong? Perhaps I'm just trying to think being the devil as advocate, you know, um, what exactly drives Africans to want to leave and seek to build careers elsewhere? I know that we have some circumstances with our country as Africa, but or is is it just a urge to just want to do better and perhaps have, a, have an added advantage what would you say is the reason for that
2: um so I mean look I think it's a very important question and I'm glad you asked it um I'm I'm lucky uh that my first degree was in my home country so I did my undergraduate in Zimbabwe and yeah I I, I think I would have stayed you know if if I was not curious, you know, I think what led me, what led me to leave was curiosity, was the moment I realized that I loved writing so much that I wanted to learn more. And I started just from the local, attending local workshops. It is through those local workshops that led to me to meet people that eventually facilitated my way out of Zimbabwe. And so... Yeah. You know, there are frustrations. I remember when I started, when I started, I used to cry, you know, my first semester, my first year of, of university in Zimbabwe, I was miserable because I thought I was just going to not amount to anything. I was not going to be able to do anything with my degree. There were, there were um, strikes, you know, uh, we didn't have books, you know. Uh, there were all kinds of things, you know, that I can I can list that can, that are negative, but I think one of the things that I've learned, you know, throughout my my university experiences, you know, is that a degree is your experience. You know, for me, increasingly, this is one thing that I hold to my heart that every instit- every campus that I've spent time in, as Dr. Yobo alluded to, you know, for me, it's the friendships it's the, it's the teachers that have impacted my life, you know, that when I look back or it is my, my time sitting in the library by myself, you know, it is just discovering a book in the library that is not part of my course. You know, they're, they're they're sort of distinct moments and distinct, distinct events throughout this process, you know, that have shaped how I feel. I think one, one other thing that we are never taught, you know, is that lecturers are, are accessible. You know, there is a reason why every university website has a lecturer's email address on it. You can reach out to anybody, and you can ask any question. Um, because I think that the cha- the challenge we have is also kind of formed. I mean, this is, I guess, in a sense, historical. You know, our educational experience which is very top-down, which is not interactive. You're not supposed to ask questions. You're only spoken to, you know. And I think that we, we always have this distance between ourselves and the people who teach us. And I, and I remember that when I was a student, if I asked questions, some of my professors used to be so frustrated. Like, why are you asking questions? You are the only one who asks questions, you know. Oh, really? and, it, and, it, and I found that very interesting, you know. Like, I mean, I, I think when you're going through it, you don't know what you're going through. I'm I'm now speaking in retrospect that I remember that I was even discouraged to ask questions and I think these are the kinds of things that shape you as a person that make you understand the relevance of your own education because if you're not asking questions then sometimes you finish a degree and you don't know what to do with it because that's also the thing I remember my my, my classmates who used to say to me I'm just I'm just I'm just here to get a certificate and I and I and I used to think about it like, what does that mean? Why do you want to get a certificate? You know, what are you going to do with your certificate? You're you there's no there's no happiness, you know, there's no passion attached, you know, to getting a certificate. But I think if you are intentional that it's an experience, um, and that you want to you're growing with a group of people your age, you know, and you're thinking with them and you're dreaming with them and you're arguing with them and you're learning with them, I think. Your 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 experience changes. I mean, it's unfortunate our governments, you know, do, do frustrate us. You know, I think that the the issues that affect university students on the continent are pretty much universal, and they mm. almost always go to, you know, mismanagement, corruption, um, political interference. You know, all kinds of like they are common. You know, things that happen throughout our campuses. But I think that th- those should not stop us from dreaming, you know, from wanting to to grow, you know. I think we should always be asking questions. We should be curious. And, yeah, and, and then maybe also build, you know, circles of friends and, and support systems that understand or believe in the kinds of things that we want in our lives.
1: Yeah. Uh, Dr. Yobo? So uh, here's the thing. You mentioned a bit about this. There's these prestigious ones which are brilliant with PR, your Yales, and, and you know, the likes. Many students apply to these prestigious institutions in the US, for example, such as Yale, uh, Princeton and Harvard. Uh, apparently, in fact, uh, each year, uh, Harvard receives a record of over 40,000 applications of which the institution typically accepts. I was shocked when I saw this. Less than 5% how does one ensure you are accepted? So how does one practically stand out? I mean, you are like so desperate to get into the prestigious, you know, uh, sort of institution in the US and everybody back home is going, you can do it, everybody's fasting and praying. How do you stand out? I mean, it's like, geez, like a competition.
0: Yeah, that is true. The the competition is stiff um, to get into some of the schools. I, I think that... You have to make use of some of the alumni networks. So, for example, I have a, a friend um, who uh, told me she got into Smith College. Smith College is one of these prestigious um, private schools here in, in the US, and it's uh, you know it's an all women's college. And I asked her how was she was she able to get in there, and it was like, oh, you know, when I mean she grew up in Zimbabwe, uh, growing up in Zimbabwe, we had this. Folks, alumni that came and they created this program that they came to the uh, girls' school and talked to us about it. And so that's how I was able to get in. I mean, this is a really small, very prestigious and competitive school to get into. So a big part, I mean, at the undergrad level, really, it's like shooting a dart in the dark and hoping that, you know, it, it hits. Um But at a graduate school level, it's actually a lot more easier to get into the schools than one would actually even imagine, uh, because then at this point, the admission decisions rest on the faculty. In the undergrad level, it's, you know, these admission counselors will have to come through thousands of essays and try to now pick out one. Um, But you know even if you don't get in there there's no need to be discouraged it has you know if your self-esteem should not be you know lower or shouldn't you shouldn't feel like oh you're not smart enough in fact actually the increasing number of studies coming out that you know maybe going to these schools are not very good because um i think you know they gave the example Malcolm gladwell actually has a book and a whole segment talking about why folks should not go into some of these schools because um, if you're say the top of your class and you go into a school where everybody was the top of their class, then someone has to be at the bottom. Everyone is not going to be at the top, and so you start to realize that. Um, I mean, they've done studies that only twenty percent of the people that graduate from these schools actually end up as succeeding um, because they, they go in there and they, they feel discouraged. I was so smart and now I'm like the last. You know what's going on, and so really it is that. Um, don't get discouraged. Look at other places. Your undergrad education is so fundamental. Uh, and if you can go to maybe even a sm- other smaller colleges or one where you're going to get really good time with faculty mentors, then, um, you know, that is really going to change everything for you. And so, again, these schools are great, you know, for at a graduate level. Um, but if you can get in there at the undergrad level, you know, it's not the end of the world. Find another school where you're going to, you know, get a degree and have as much fun. Uh, studying whatever you're trying to study and then at the graduate school level you can try again and your odds there are significantly higher.
1: Yeah so let's talk about you know the competition of China I'm not sure but I, it seems like uh, they've taken in a lot of Africans uh, to study that side what how would you rate um, I mean of course the idea is to perhaps study outside of you know the, the continent but There seems to be this uh, tradition now of China really taking on quite a lot of Africans to study there in the past five years. If you were to advise a young person today, where, where would you tell them to go? Because there's also a report that says that some African countries, for example, your West African countries would be more keen to study in the UK. But here you are, for example, Dr. Taylor, you studied in the U.S. and you're from West Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's others that perhaps, you know, the other maybe from Anglophone countries or so would, you know, do the the U.S. So there's this preference that's traditional, but people are breaking boundaries now. Is it a matter of preference or do you just go where you get in? What would you advise?
0: i think um <laughs> this uh this one is a really long and long discussion topic you know the trajectory for higher education in the world right china is becoming a big force higher education especially in america has become so corporate you know it's now about the dollars chasing you know going to the best schools to do research for example and so the chinese now again they've just they have so much money and so what they're doing now is they're offering a lot of scholarship and you know, to their credit, they are doing a lot of things right. You know, they are sending some of their brightest folks to go to schools in the U.S., and the U.K., go study and come back home and implement some of that. Now, I know that one, one of the biggest challenge actually coming out of China was the fact that um, they had to, you know, when you do academia stuff, you have to publish. Others have to know what you're doing. And for a long time, the Chinese were writing only in their language and the rest of the world doesn't read their language. And so it was really hard to communicate their work. But now they are now, you know, because a lot of their people are going to, you know, the US and the UK to get education. Now they're writing in English and a lot of their work is being read and assimilated by by others. And so, you know, they do do, you know, good work does come out of there as well. Um, but I think that people, you just have to, at the end of the day, it just becomes, going abroad to study really, you just have to find whichever country you think you're going to, or you want to go to. I mean, I think that it, it comes to that, but it doesn't change the fact that, yeah, there's some of these solid schools that have established long record and they're good, they're well-recognized, no one questions your certificates or degrees from there, you know, Um and so you you should go there. But I think that many times we shouldn't, um, especially in education, we shouldn't just fit in a mold, you know, sometimes, it's good to have alumni and people who have gone to certain school, but sometimes you too have to chat your own part. And maybe sometimes chatting that part is that I don't have to go to France to study, for example, because a lot of my friends either went to France or to Germany, but you know, where they, they probably have other friends and family there. But is that, hey, I want to try something else. And so pick your strengths. If you're interested in the sciences, you know, the US, of course, is a good shot. You know, UK and a bunch of European countries are good. China is coming up and Um, you know, so just find where you think that you want to stay. And in fact, maybe pick a country that you've actually always dreamt of being in, because, you know, sometimes um, that can actually help you. um, Because if you're studying a place that you're excited, you know, to be in as well, it would also change your, your, your mindset about that education. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So as we draw to a close with this discussion, I mean, there's, I think we can, there's so much to talk about, right? But at least we kind of planted a few seeds of inspiration and just some highlight there. But studying in a foreign country is, is very different from tourism, right? Traveling for holidays like very different from, you know, settling in a foreign country for a year-long study or even more. I, I, I wish to know how you survived, Dr. Yobo, for example. I think you've been there for over a decade. Um, you get to experience your place of study for longer than a period, of course, and obviously familiarize with local knowledge such as, uh, tourist traps to avoid and how to I mean this is like stuff we read in a little sort of pamphlet you know or on the internet but so here you are you're there my question is and and I want to start with uh, Dr. Mushaka um, Vanu because you did quite a quite I think two different countries it was England at some point and I think the US how do you handle cross-cultural dynamics in brief how do you manage that?
2: Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think it's kind of interlinked to the the, the previous question you just asked, you know, about China or, or just going to places that are offering opportunities. You know, I think for me, it was always uh, researching the space, the places I was going to, because the environment matters, you know, when I first left to go to Wales, um, at the very beginning in the early 2000s. I left with the impression, you know, like I remember in the early 2000s, there were so many Zimbabweans going to the to the UK, and we used to call the UK Harare North, you know. So the idea was that you can find a Zimbabwean everywhere you go in the in the United Kingdom. But then I arrive and I'm in this small town and I'm by myself, and there was no one like my no one like me, you know. And it was a completely new experience. I was the that guy who walks around in the on the streets and people are coming to pinch my skin people are coming to pull my hair like these things happened to me in the 2000s you know things that that i have been reading in history textbooks in 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 fiction in fictional books you know but then but what i learned from that particular experience is that i'd not i'd not done enough enough research of where i was going i was just excited to leave and i left and i, I arrived and the shock was in the moment of arrival and I had to adjust and I had to learn quickly and I had to adapt. And in a a way, I'm I'm grateful that I had that experience at the very beginning of my life abroad because it taught me how to navigate, how to speak for myself. It taught me to understand about identity, to understand about myself. You know, I spent the first two Christmases in Europe by myself because – I was at a very small uh, college campus that everyone could afford to go for, you know, for trips to, you know, to other European countries or back to their home countries. And I couldn't. And I think subsequently, all the other spaces I went to, I did research before. You know, I learned about those places. I read about them. I I I wanted to feel that I want I, I can be there and I will enjoy it. Um and so I think I became intentional, you know, uh with my subsequent experiences. When I went to New York, I always wanted to go to New York. And I'm I'm glad that I spent time there. Um and I think New York actually transformed even the way I work the way I think about my own work as an academic as a writer you know there was something and so the that level of intentionality fed into the work um into the work that I that I now do so I think the most important thing is to do the research you know research the town where where this institution is you know uh society and cultural organizations that are there um and you know in that way they don't have to be people from your own country. So that's that's also the other thing, you know, sometimes a lot of the things we experience, you know, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, you know, as long as you're a foreigner, you're facing the same challenges, you're missing family, you need, you know, a support system. So you just need to figure out what is around you, you know, what kind of group, what kind of groups, what kind of cultural institutions, cultural organizations. Um, And I think that makes the experience much better. So it's, yeah, you don't, I think it's, it's, it's difficult to just go, you know, and I I did that myself. And I think that I would not advise it. I think do your research and know where you're going and the experience will be much better.
1: Yeah. Did, Did you by any chance struggle fitting into or leaning into conversations about race relations by any chance? Was it easy for you to just tap into that kind of dialogue or, you know, it's just different?
2: Um I think for me it's it started in class, you know. Um I I went for my masters, I did a masters in creative writing. And I remember that my classmates used to read my work in a very anthropological, you know, sense, you know, the way they were very excited that I was the first African writer that they ever met. They were excited to read everything I was writing, and that scared me, you know. Um and at the time I worked in the in, in the university library. So at some point, I went to the to our our course director and I said I want to speak to the class because I want to introduce it, to introduce them, you know, to other writers. And I I was very dramatic about it. So I went to the library with a suitcase and I put all these African books I could find and I brought piles and piles in class. And I said, I'm very flattered that I'm the first African writer I've met that you love, that you read, that you you, you drink coffee with. But I also love these other African writers, you know, that you have access to that I'm also encountering for the first time, you know, there are books that I'd never seen, but I always know about, you know, as titles. And I feel, I feel like that allowed me to open that, that, that uncomfortable conversation, you know, about, you know, about race, about identity, about, you know, immigration, about, you know, colonial history, like all these uncomfortable things that we sit with in these classes that our, our professors and even our classmates uh, do not want to bring up. You know, so th- th- I think that's also, that's also a very important question, um, I guess, depending on what you study. Like I study literature, I study history, and 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 there's no way I can afford those, uh, to ignore those kinds of questions because the impact, you know, everything that I do, you know, whether I want to do research, if I have to think about, you know, a genealogy of writers, I have to look back to all the older African writers that I've read and admired and the politics that they have to face. And whether or not that politics, you know, still manifests and affect me. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's a it's a it's it's a question, you know, one I think I, I mean again when I went to do my PhD, I was the only African student in the School of English, you know, at the University of Kent. And I remember I was teaching classes, you know. Um, and my my students used to, some of my students used to make fun of my name. Um or, they used to treat me, especially in the first uh, first days of the semester. They would treat me like another student, so they didn't think I was capable of teaching them. You know, mm-hmm. and so when you're introducing yourself, you have to then introduce your 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 capabilities. You know, your your qualifications, and the fact that your competence. You know, and and it's it's unfortunate. You know, but I think it also it's they, it's it, it also opens teachable moments for yourself. And for your for your classes and the community that you have become part of,
1: I like that it opens up uh, teachable moments. And I suppose that's just how life has become for all of us in in all our different spaces, isn't it? Where we constantly have to—I mean, as people would say—it's not up to, if I could put it but bluntly, really, it's not the duty of Black people to teach white people about race or what—that is the job and the labor that has to be done by white people if they want to understand you know, they need to do that laboring of teaching but of course we pretty much always open to i suppose share and but within the right context and so forth so i suppose a bit of a burden for africans to carry out, i must say really because you could just never be black and just never be african and be in the us and study and just mind your own business and not be asked about if africa is got animals all over or just be. it's africa from africa but i suppose that's the beauty of what we carry from where we come from uh, we literally have like five minutes dr Yobo. i just also i don't want to miss out without talking about your experience you you have you probably one of the one one person i know who has studied who has left home for a very long time um i don't know how you survived please just tap take us a little bit into the journey in about four minutes about how you managed your your uh, cross-cultural dynamics and how you tapped into those nuances of race relations and that sort
0: of thing. Yeah, so I don't think that anything prepared me actually for that um, because it is just hard to exist maybe as just a human, right, in in America, uh, because part of that is it's so obvious that I am different. And so, to me, I didn't because growing up, we had, you know, you know, there are people, you know, foreign workers who work in Cameroon, their kids go to school with us. So, you, those things you would not you really didn't think about in high school, but in university became really apparent. And, and for me, I realized that I became a, a sort of ambassador, not just for my country, but for my continent. I was likely the first Africans people ever encountered in their lives. Um, I remember one day a lady asked me a question of, oh do you know what bread is and you know have you ever seen beings you know some things and you're just like wow i mean i suppose you know this is america i thought people knew what's going on around the world but i began to realize that um you know it it is going to be a difficult journey and that's just the truth i had to work maybe three four five times as hard as you know the the regular person because that's just what it is and you know, we have to do all these things. You know, it's not easy. It's a journey that we, you, we keep fighting till the till the very end, till the very day that we, you know, be it outside of academia in society as well. We're facing it. You see, in the USA, we're dealing with race relations in a manner that we haven't dealt with things. Um, you know, civil rights. We have not really talked about race relations and reconciliation in this country, and now it's front and center. And so, to me, really. Um, a big part about that was at first, I mean, I've talked about this in other settings. At first, I had to really get to accept the fact that I was African, because to me, that was really, and I did not think of myself like that, not because I'm trying to shy away from that, but I thought of my army oh, Cameroonian, you know, I, so that was one big identity for me, but then, you know, people don't, they, they have no clue how many countries we have. So it's like, oh, that African kid, that African kid, you know, so you just had to accept that. Hey, you know what? I'm just going to be known as an African and I have to be a good ambassador. I realize that sometimes to, uh, we have to do our job to introduce them to our culture. But again, it was tough. You know, why do I always have to do that? Why do I always have to do that? But um, I'm happy uh, because I think that some of the success stories that have come from some of, you know, maybe my going through that school or through that program, you know, leaves a good image about my, you know, other Africans that may come after. And so that's one thing that I, I realized is that I'm also, I may be a first one in this setting, but I certainly will not be the last. So whatever I do now has to be something that will leave a good report so that another person can be able to come in and to be able to live in that. So it's not easy, but you know, we're trying every day. And uh, this is the more reason why more Africans have to go into some of these settings to study, to even be in these settings, to be advocates for other Africans um, as they come through.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a, I think for me, that's the best actually advice. I think being an ambassador anywhere else in two minutes to both of you, as we close, are there any websites or any institution in terms of name that you can refer to someone listening who's young to say, check this out, check that out. If they're looking at studying abroad, anything you can just sort of, you know, I don't know, website journals or something maybe that they can check out and and try to start their research of their journey.
0: I know, I mean, (laughs) this is funny. I had a conversation with a friend the other day and they said, why would I recruit somebody into a system that is going to traumatize them? (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I think that uh, one way to start is if people are thinking of coming into the US, you know, there's this Education USA, I think it's run by the State Department. It has really good information about, you know, schools in America as a whole. So maybe people can go look at some of that website and you know, understand how the American system is and some of the other stuff, because, again, for most of us in Africa, American education is not the norm. It's the British style of school. And so if you want to learn about that system, I think that's a good general place to start and just read about the American system. But again, just reach out to people. You'll be surprised at how much these people people respond to you. I know I, at the time I reached out to some guy who is very busy and undoubtedly the most popular guy in Africa. I thought he would never respond, and I got a, re- a reply, and I was shocked. And then we, I you know, we do, we've been in this email communication, and I'm like, this dude is likely so busy. How come he has time to even read and respond? So just reach out to people and just try to see if they can help you. I think that's you know the best way.
1: Yeah. Reach
2: out, uh, Doctor Um I think, I think also be careful. You know, there are many many funny um, services. You know that promise to take you to these places. I think if you're interested in a, in a particular country, reach out to their to the embassies as well. You know, they're always very open and happy to share opportunities in their countries. But yeah, do reach out to people. I think that social. Media, you know, I think reach out in respectful ways. Uh, people are happy to, to, to be of assistance. And um, that's probably the best resource you, you may have.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much to the both of you, Dr. Lucia Nanayobo, Dr. Tinashe Mushagavanu. Thank you so much for the time you've taken. I know this conversation is going to help somebody out there um, at some point, not just now. It will sit on the internet, it will be there, and it will just be a resource to spark someone's dream and help it come true. So I really appreciate your time. And we wish you well in everything you've done, everything you are doing. Congratulations. I think uh, Dr. Yobo also has just had an incredible milestone that he reached recently. So you remain an inspiration, not just to me, but to many others. And we thank you for the work that you do. So love and light to you in in your path as you continue to become ambassadors for Africa. Thanks for joining us on Millennial Dialogue on Africa.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye.